HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This is Chris Young, co-author of Modernist Cuisine. Do you want to learn cutting-edge cooking techniques? You could buy Modernist Cuisine, or you can save yourself $450 and check out our new free website, chefsteps.com. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org, a nonprofit, member-supported radio station. We're millions strong, with folks tuning in from over 200 countries. We are education. We are entertainment. We are the future of food. May is our membership drive. Become a member and support us while receiving e-newsletters, advanced invites, special discounts, and a membership card. We need your support. Visit our website and click the donate button to become a member today. Thank you for believing in us and enjoy the show. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria in the back of... Well, no, coming to you from Roberta's Pizzeria, actually. Not in the back of anything. We're in the back of uh, Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Uh, back from Senegal today. Uh, sorry, I wasn't able to do it uh, last week live from Senegal, but uh, you know how sometimes these things work. Uh, we are down two of our crew members today. Nastasha, the Hammer Lopez, uh, is in Philadelphia attending uh, a conference uh, by our good friends David Michaels, f- uh, flavorists and food chemistry folks down in Philadelphia. And they are hosting a food innovation seminar today, and Nastasha is there. Uh, also, Jack is MIA today, but we do have Joe, thank goodness. Hey, Joe. How's it going, Dave? Doing well. Uh, and we are joined in the studio, I think by the first time ever, maybe in the studio, with uh, Peter Kim. Yo, what's up, y'all? How? So Peter Kim uh, is, uh, what's your title over there? Executive Director. Really? Yeah. Okay. Is the Executive you Director... You should notice, Dave. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, Peter Kim is the Executive Director of the Museum of Food and Drink, uh, which is a 501c3. Uh, when did we get our status there? We got it last September. Right, and uh, we... Uh, it, uh, oh, yes, uh... I'm uh, the founder. I also have, what's my other title here? You're also the president. Well, founder and also the president. Visionary, like, like guru. Like Hair Club. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Great. Uh, and uh, you want to give him the mission? I'm sure you have it uh, memorized. 
Our mission is to change the way people think about food and inspire day-to-day curiosity about what we eat and why. Yeah, and uh, and you know, just uh, and I'm sure I've already spouted this a million times, but just, why do we need a brick-and-mortar museum devoted to this? Because uh, you can't eat food in a in a book, and uh, you know, watching TV is always unsatisfying. You just see people eating food, but in a museum, you could actually be tasting things as you learn about it. Right. So in this museum, it's not going to be as someone once asked me, uh, you know, a long time ago. Are we just going to be looking at, uh, you know, shellacked pieces of bread or some sort of plastic sushi or stuff like that? Is that what we're going to be looking at here? No moldy sandwiches and, you know, little boxes. Uh, this is going to be like – I mean, sometimes I describe it like like Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, but with an educational focus. Right, right. And, uh, you know, and, and and why have most other food uh, museums in this concept? Why, why do you find them uh, lacking? Why are they lacking there? I think two things, really. One is that they often have too broad of a focus – and so they try to cover everything in food and drink, which, you know, as you know really well, that covers, that's a, that covers a, a, a lot of ground. And so MOFAD will be actually focusing on very specific topics instead. And the other is I think, you know, a, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of food museums really end up being corporate shills, and that's something we're really not going to be. Sweet. Uh, so, you know, it's good to hear, uh, good to hear these words out of, uh, out of Peter's mouth. We hope to have this museum in an actual brick-and-mortar location in how many years? Around five years, yeah. give or take. Five years. So it takes time to build a museum. It, it, it turns out it does take time to build a museum. In fact, uh, you know, most museums um, start with a large donation of money uh, or a large donation of a collection, right? So they start with that kind of a, that kind of a, a nut. The, uh, the, the genesis of this museum simply is an idea. But I think, uh, you know, uh, the, the great part about this idea is that uh, a lot of people like the subject. And so we're hoping to. We're going to be – I'm going to be pestering and uh, soliciting for the museum uh, more and more uh, as time goes on. Uh, just wanted our listeners to know that uh, the project is still going uh, great guns, slamming forward, not in a way that um, people outside might see – but that there is actually uh, a lot of work going on. And hopefully, you know, can't talk about it much right now, but hopefully good news in three, four months maybe. Yeah. Possible. Fingers crossed. And if it's not good news in three and four months, I'll tell you what the bad news is, that it wasn't good news. And we'll figure <laughs> out what our next steps are. But the other reason I have uh, Peter in the studio today is because I just got back from Africa, and since Nastasha can't be here, I want to talk a little bit later about my trip to Africa. And Peter's a good choice because he was also a volunteer uh, in the Peace Corps in Cameroon, correct? Yeah, that's right. Almost two and a half years there. Yep, yep. And uh, interestingly, if we have time, I don't know if we will because, of course, I'm horribly late, uh, we'll get in also to uh, Peter's experimentation with uh, cot over on the, in the east of Africa, right? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Dave. Yeah, okay, it's legal over there, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, I don't think you're going to get prosecuted. I don't think you can get uh, – Peter, aside, aside from being the uh, executive director of the Museum of Food and Drink and a, uh, an accomplished uh, Spanish-style uh, guitar player – uh, is a lawyer, and so you know probably shouldn't cop to illegal drug use in uh, in this country. And I mean, I guess technically, if it's a Schedule One narcotic, you're not allowed to consume it in any country. Is that true? I'm not sure how it works. Well, maybe you could talk about the experiences of some guy named Meter Mim that you were sitting next to. In, Keter Pim. Yeah, right. Keter Pim <laughs> in uh, uh, in East Africa later to discuss it because I think it's it's an interesting. Um, it's an interesting story, and uh, we'll get into it later. Anyway, should you have questions, feel free to call them in, too. 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Okay, first question in from William about milk. My cousin had an interesting question on her, face, on her Facebook page. She's come across whole milk being sold for $1.59 a gallon at her local store. That's crazy. Milk should not cost $1.59 a gallon. You know what I mean? That's insane. I mean, like, I mean, it shouldn't happen. 
It's got to mean like I hope I hope the store's losing a lot of money and that they haven't figured out a way to you know screw the system and the people making it in the cows so hard <laughs> that the milk is actually only worth a dollar fifty nine a gallon. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean maybe maybe someone like mislabeled it. I've done that. Like I walked into a store once and uh, passion fruit were labeled uh, per pound instead of per each. This was back when I was, you know, just graduated from college. I had no money. And so I bought every passion fruit in the store for, like, an unbelievably low price. And the person, I was like, it says so on the pricing. You have to honor the price that you put on the thing. And they did. I was even more of a jerk then than I am now. <laughs> but I should have just purchased two passion fruit at that price and then let them recoup their mistake. But instead I bought. That's not you, Dave. It's not me. I bought every passion fruit in the store. That's right. <laughs> I was like, it doesn't say Limit. I was a real jerk. But, you know, when, you're, when you have no money and you, and you love things, like it's, you know, you feel more of a justification for jerking people around like that. And you taught them a valuable lesson in precision with their pricing. I did. I'm sure they didn't give a crap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a stop and shop back in New Haven. Oh, boy. Going back to the super. Yeah, I haven't been back to the super stop and shop uh, in New Haven in a bazillion years. And I don't think I will. No? No. You, you a shop and stop? I've never. No. No? No. no. Really okay. Uh, okay, question was, are there any drawbacks to freezing whole milk? Will the texture, consistency, or taste be adversely affected? I would think since it has much less milk fat than cream that the ice crystals wouldn't affect it so much. Thanks. Can't wait till the Kickstarter torch is available. Well, neither can I, actually. <laughs> but um, we're working on that as well. So it's an interesting question, William. Um, now, there are uh, a lot of studies out there. Uh, what happens – I haven't – Tasted. I didn't have time to actually do the test and see whether you could do tasting. What, what happens is that the um, the, the uh, fat globules in homogenized milk are altered by the freezing process, and so it's possible that you will get different. And in fact, there are some studies. I didn't have time to sift through them all. There's a bunch of studies uh, out there on this, but a lot of them are older, so I couldn't get the full text of them. They weren't in the in the, da- in the database that I was searching, so I couldn't get the actual nitty gritty of it. But uh, yeah, so when you freeze, especially if you're going through multiple freeze thaw cycles, which is going to happen unless something's totally frozen. So it depends on how much of abuse you get in the in the fridge. You're going to alter the fat globule size. Now, if you alter the fat globule size, you will alter uh, mouthfeel and you will alter, um, po- you know, uh, possibly, uh, you know, ha- how it works or wh- whether it's going to, uh, you know, the fat's going to agglomerate more when you when you heat it. I would think that it's going to be relatively small effect, uh, you know, when you're using the milk in, in in cooking situations where curdling might not be a problem, uh, and it might not even have an effect in, in a curdling situation. Uh, but yes, technically it is affected. And although I apologize that I don't have uh, more information on that, I came across, and this is one of the reasons I'm actually late, is because when I'm researching something, I, in, just like in, in my real life, when I'm researching things, I go off on tangents and found a very interesting tangent um, it's actually going to tie in later. We have a question about uh, pregnancy and, and eating later. But um, there was a study on freeze, freezing and thawing human breast milk. And this is uh, actually very important because um, uh, m- you know, most mothers who breastfeed um, also, at least that I have met, you know, will also um, express some of their breast milk and freeze it for later use. This way, if they're uh, at work, you know, uh, a caregiver can – uh, feed the actual breast milk to the child, or uh, an alternate thing is that you know the mom then can sleep a little bit longer at night, and the dad can wake up in the middle of the night and feed uh, the already expressed breast milk 
you know, natural breast milk to the, the baby, right? So and, – and, you know, you can either refrigerate the, the milk or you can uh, freeze it. Now, uh, <laughs> so the question is, does freezing the breast milk do anything bad to the milk? <laughs> Uh, and and oh, this is also important in other countries actually because uh, there's a thing called hu- a human milk banks. And in a human milk bank, you know, uh, mothers who are lactating uh, continue to lactate and, and express milk, and then donate it to um, donate it to hospitals so that um, you know uh, um, babies that are born early, let's say, and maybe the, the the mother's milk doesn't come in right away, they can feed this you know actual human milk. To babies that couldn't otherwise have, which is a great idea, right? Fantastic idea, right? But you, but you have to freeze it to to preserve it. Okay, so so what happens? Well, it turns out that uh, aside from the the structure of the fat, you know, uh, changing like I said, I said it would, the actual fat level in the milk as it's fed to the babies decreases substantially on freezing, and uh, along with that, the protein available in the milk decreases. Not as much as the fat. The fat can decrease significantly, uh, you know, but the, the protein in it as well can decrease. And the, the theory is this, that on freezing, the fat globules agglomerate. When they agglomerate, um, you know, they're not as well dispersed in the liquid phase. On thawing, right, the, the fat preferentially sticks to the relatively um, hydrophobic walls of the plastic vessels that breast milk is invariably stored in. They didn't, and they didn't test, test, test glass because it's not usually stored in glass, right? So the fat, uh, the fat um, sticks um, predominantly to the, the side things, and so the remaining liquid is relatively depleted in fat, and that some of the proteins also are bound in with the fat and adhere to the fat layer, and so you're also somewhat reduced in the protein levels uh, as a result, and, and turns out that it's statistically significant. Interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, – there you have it. Man, I mean, I don't know really what to, to make of that. The name of the study, should you choose to look at it, is – and uh, my iPad decided that it, I should no longer be able to read, so it turned off for a second – is uh, it's in a, uh, the magazine Early Human Development. And it's called Analysis of the Influence of – oh, they also tested pasteurization, uh, but I didn't read uh, that section as much, pasteurization of it. Freezing, thawing, and other processes on human milk's macronutrient concentrations by Viera et al. in 2011. Um, oh, yeah, you don't, here's a reason not to pasteurize. I did read a little bit. A reason, a reason not to pasteurize uh, human breast milk uh, is that it inactivates the bile salt stimulated lipase, which is greatly responsible for the digestion and absorption of fat in newborn infants. So pasteurization decreases the maximum utilization of the delivered human milk. That's a, basically a direct quote. So anyway, there you have it. Yeah, regardless of what you do, it's probably better than powdered milk. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'm just saying that, you know, uh, and, and it's not saying that, you, that you're not getting, you know, all the benefits. It's just that there's, you know, there's not going to be quite as nutritive you know, in terms of fat. Anyway, I thought it was interesting. But here's another interesting thing I researched as a result. I'll tell you, I have tangents, right? So recently, I, here's my story about uh, – that I've always had for years and I've never gone back and done the hardcore research, which is, of course, what you should always do before you make a statement. People say, well, uh, should I consume uh, breast milk? I mean, should I – should I should I consume alcohol while I'm lactating, right? That's a question that a lot of people ask. And my you know, kind of pat response has been, well, look, you figure that uh, human milk, although it has fat, is mostly water. 
you know, vastly mostly water. And therefore, you would assume that the uh, alcohol content of breast milk is relatively similar to the mother's blood alcohol level. Blood alcohol level, let's say, you know, they, they were, you know, on the limit there, 0.05%, right? So assuming that the blood, that the milk has a roughly similar alcohol concentration of 0.05% alcohol, in my mind, from a, uh, from an actual ethanol level concentration, that's roughly zero, 0.5%. That would mean 50 milligrams per milligrams per 100 uh, milliliters as opposed to uh, a glass of wine, which is, uh, you know, like let's say it's 12% alcohol. That's um, 12,000 milligrams per, uh, you know, per milliliter, right? right? So roughly zero we're talking about. 12,000 milligrams? No. No. No, sorry, 120,000 milligrams. Yeah, right. so 35 you know, milligrams would be roughly zero. Right. Okay, so it uh, turns out uh, I might be wrong. So tip the bottle. Yeah, so well, no, no, so, so here's the story, right? It's, uh, it, 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 what is true is that human breast milk does roughly correlate with blood alcohol level, right? And so that uh, for a woman that, uh, that consumes roughly uh, three, you know, uh, 35, 30, you know, three or so or a little more, a little less uh, – grams um, of alcohol per kilogram of body weight, right? Is that true? Mm. Anyway, it gets a blood alcohol level of like 0.3. Mm. Your milk will be roughly 0.3, 0.35, somewhere in there, right? right? Percent. So the, so the, the, deal, uh, the deal is is that that was right, what I said. Mm. However, it turns out that it, there's a study that was published in 2000 that shows that that small amount of alcohol in the breast milk can actually have an effect. What they studied was um, sleep, the sleep patterns of babies and so uh, that were fed. And the study was they, they had mothers uh, and they expressed breast milk you know, with a medulla. And then over the course of two different testing days, they either took that milk and added 35 milligrams per 100 ml of alcohol to the breast milk bottle or didn't. And it turned out that the ones that they fed the um, alcohol to – did not uh, sleep as well and didn't have as much uh, activity during their uh, waking hours as the ones that didn't. So, you know, it's only one study. Uh, I haven't seen it replicated since 2000. I don't know whether the information is still there, uh, but it's interesting to note that, um, that that's out there, right? Yeah. Anyway. All right. So uh, Alex from Toronto writes in, Dear Dave, Nastasha, Jack, Joe, Indy Jesus, Carlos, we going back, and whoever might be working in the booth now. Uh, I'm still catching up on back podcasts. I was finally prompted to write in because of Dave's story about the person rapping out loud in episode 83. So I was talking about how you know people are rapping out loud and how they suck. <laughs> That's what I was talking about. Uh, anyway, uh, Alex writes in, My wife and I recently visited New York, and probably the strangest thing about our trip was how many people we saw singing as they walked the streets or waited for subway trains. Nearly all of them had earphones in and seemed to be singing along with recordings, but were also clearly practicing rather than just casually singing along. We wondered if this was some kind of special New York thing, the Broadway equivalent of L.A. waiters hoping to be discovered by an agent or director. Judging by your reaction to the rapper, apparently not, but we saw at least a dozen people doing this on our four-day visit. Our favorite was a girl practicing her ballet moves in the subway totally unselfconsciously waiting for a train weird yes it is weird and and it is quite common here and i don't know what the hell it is i you know what i think it is 
I think it's that uh, when you live here, first of all, I remember years ago, and I might have mentioned this in the other episode, like I was learning to try and play bagpipes, and they told me, just go outside and play because just, you know, because what else are you going to do? You live in New York. You know what I mean? So there's the fact that you can't practice anything in private in New York. There's no private place in New York you can do anything. You have an apartment. You probably have a family or roommate there. Uh, you know, you don't have a basement. You don't have a garage. You don't have a backyard. Uh, what the hell are you going to do? You know, if you're going to play bagpipes, you know, what are you going to do? You know, it's like it's, there's no real choices you know what I mean and so same thing goes with uh, bad rapping or bad singing or any of that stuff is that since you have no place to do it you go outside and you do it and furthermore I think that like uh, living in such a big busy city uh, strangely dehumanizes all the people around you and they become like trees or shrubs you tend to stop thinking of them as people and then so you're not embarrassed about singing in front of them because they're, they're not human beings to you are you positing that there's a correlation between population density and bad public rapping Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. Yes. I also yes, think sir. that everybody is just crazy here, too. Like, there's a, there's a lot of crazy going on in New York City. Do you think there's more crazy than normal, or it's just like, like you see it more because you see more people every day? I think that's it. I think that there's just so many people around. There's just got to be more crazies. Right. Right. And like I say, like, you know, we have our we have our kind of, you know, zone out blinders on when you're walking around the city. And so, you know, you tend to just view everyone as this kind of like, like a blur. Right. You know? Anyway. Uh, so... Uh, anyway, uh, they went to New York and, uh, and, and they made it back. And here's the story. When we got back from our trip to New York, we found that after three years of trying, uh, we are expecting a baby, which is nice. So New York did the, did the deal. Uh, the calendar doesn't quite, uh, back this up, but I give partial credit to the Bangkok daiquiri and son of a peach that we drank at Booker and Dax bar. <laughs> Good times. Well, thanks. Thanks. I, you know, I'll take that. I'll take that credit. Uh, you know, we're, we're the... I mean, I wouldn't say that we're... Yeah, I would, I'm not going to go into it. Okay. Uh, we don't seem to have anything like the awesome New York bar scene here in Toronto, but perhaps I'm just unaware of the best stuff. Dave Chang just opened three restaurants in Toronto. Any plans to expand the Booker and Dax empire? I Let's put it this way. I don't know. Won't say no. I won't say yes. Okay. Very ominous. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, I hope it's not ominous. I hope if we do it, it's a good thing. <laughs> it's not like, you know, the evil empire coming in. I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. That'd be awesome. I wish I had some sort of like evil, evil emperor vibe that I could bring to whatever I, you know what I mean? Someday. That's my goal now. That's my new goal. Evil empire vibe. Okay. Uh, but I guess it's time for some cooking questions. Now that the wife is up the spout, she is no longer able to enjoy her favorite drinks. By the way, that's a phrase. And I, I, I pride myself on kind of being well-versed in slang and idiom. I mean, it's kind of, you know, I do. Uh, I never heard that one before. Have you heard that one before? Never. Uh, up the spout is a British informal, according to the uh, Oxford English Dictionary, for one, broken, i.e. no longer working, which hopefully is, that's not what we mean in the case, or uh, two, of a woman pregnant. But according to this, it's possibly related to the other thing, like somehow you're broken by getting pregnant, Whoa. because I think it was maybe an unwanted pregnancy in the past. Clearly not in this case, and it's lost that meaning. Yeah. Uh, and third, if you pawn your stuff off, you can say it's gone up the spout. I'm not even going to try to start analyzing that one. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't. But an interesting phrase, and, and I like it when anyone gives me a phrase that I'm not uh, familiar with. Okay. Or, or I should say with which I'm not familiar. Okay. Uh, she usually drinks white wine and Caesars. Caesars, possibly a Canada-specific drink. Basically, it's a Bloody Mary with clam juice. Uh, no, that, that's a drink, uh, also known as Bloody Caesar or a clam digger or a bunch of other things. Clam digger is the one I normally hear it by. You know, it's clamato, yeah. which I love saying that word. A clamato. It's not clamato, though. Like, it's tomato, tomato is fine, but it's not clamato juice. That just sounds weird. Clamato. Yeah. <laughs> With uh, the accent. Yeah. It, it, well, yes, yes. I won't do it again. Okay. Um, 
Dave just put a monocle on while he said that. I, I wish. I wish. We all know that the Mr. Peanut with the monocle is one of the most <laughs> dashing figures in all of, in, in all of uh, uh, whatever those people are called, spokes, spokes characters. That's right. Right? I mean, like, Joe, what do you think about that? You like the Mr. Peanut? With monocle, simply dashing. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. You know, I was talking about this with Labor, who's uh, the uh, design, the uh, our graphic design team for the museum, and they took a freaking peanut, which is <laughs> it's a it's a ridiculous looking thing. You know, what I mean, a peanut. It's like it's like if you squeeze the hell out of a golf ball and like colored it beige and made it dirty. That's a peanut. You're like put a top hat, give it a monocle, and all of a sudden it's like classy, classy. Amazing. And on the far end of the spectrum, I think on that very same conversation was Grimace, who is the opposite of classy. There's the no class in Grimace. Grimace, and nobody knows what, what the heck Grimace is. Yeah, now, and listen, by the way, I don't want to get any negative calls here. We're not hating on Grimace. He's no, just no, not no, classy. No. Just not classy. Yeah, he's, he's like the – he is like kind of prototypical schlub. <laughs> I mean I am also a prototypical, prototypical schlub, so yeah. not hating. Yeah, all right. Yeah, no hate. No hate on the Grimace. Just not classy. Okay. Uh <laughs> Okay, uh, she usually drinks white wine and Caesars. Uh, I finished whipping up a batch. Uh, so, by the way, if she's not going to drink alcoholic drinks and she likes Bloody Marys or those kinds of things, uh, that's terrific because they don't have that much of a perception of alcohol. So, like, the hardest drinks to, uh, to you know, master are the ones that are heavily alcohol-flavored, like bourbon drinks or things like that. So, you know, if she likes things that are um, – if she likes things like that that are relatively strong flavored, you know, you could easily make uh, you know, a, a, a virgin version of that. Uh, if you're going to use any sort of fresh clam product, obviously pasteurize the shit – pasteurize the hell out of it. You don't want to get uh, you know, anyone uh, sick, but the Clamato juice that they sell has been you know, heat pasteurized, and so it's okay. So you, know, so you can use it. Uh, so, I mean, that would be an ideal. The white wine, obviously you can't you know, drink the white wine, but you could do any sort of um, – uh, you know, acidic uh, products. Some people say like white cranberry juice. It's altered with a bunch of different things. I mean, I think the the, the key thing. Well, I'll, I'll continue reading the question. Maybe right. Yeah, okay. great idea. Uh, uh, he's, uh, he says, "I've just finished whipping up a batch of your coriander syrup recipe, which is very tasty, with the one I use for the coriander old fashions. But I was wondering if you suggest either some other recipes or somewhere to start looking for serious drinks, which happen to contain no alcohol and are easy to make at home. I tried making a peach sipping vinegar based on recipes for other fruits that I found online, but that was a bust." It just tasted gross. Uh, any thoughts? I'm hoping to find something with enough complexity that will make it satisfying to uh, sip for a long time. And I think that's the key, by the way, uh, is the sipping for a long time because that's what uh, you know, kind of separates uh, uh, an alcoholic drink that you don't pound too hard. At least you're not supposed to. I mean I might, but you're not supposed to uh, versus you know, uh, uh, you know, like a thirst-quenching drink. Now, on the one hand, the reason why coriander, uh, the coriander syrup, especially if you make it spicier, if you increase the spice level – of uh, a drink or the kind of uh, spice impact of the drink, it tends to shift uh, towards a more sipping drink, right? So that's why the coriander syrup, which is more akin to – like take ginger ale, right? I love ginger ale. Uh, you don't pound ginger ale as hard as you pound Sprite, right? I don't pound Sprite either. <laughs> well, let's say you were going to. Yeah. You know what I mean? You don't pound it as, as hard as you pound seltzer. Yeah. Right? Right. You don't pound ginger beer as hard as you pound ginger ale. Right. So uh, ginger beer, good candidate for uh, non-alcoholic drinks that you can sip for a while because you're going to take it in small doses. But the other key is is that you can't do that by making something that you – the reason you're taking small doses is that you don't want to drink it. 
right? right? Which is why ginger beer is such a good candidate. Uh, and you know, if you know properly done, uh, the coriander syrup uh, without with uh, with um, making it into a soda with like some lime is a good candidate because it stays good tasting, but you take it in small doses. You're not like shabang knocking it back. Um, so you know you could do that. Um, the but the other thing is uh, that I think you you know it's very difficult having tried to do this for you know my wife. You can make special drinks. The other thing you can do to make make drinks uh, more sippable, and I hesitate to do this because I don't like these kinds of drinks myself, but is to f- make them physically thick. So drinks that contain uh, purees uh, tend to go down slower. But if you like them at all, tend to be enjoyable, uh, and it's especially good in the summer months as they as they come up. Uh, so you can do like frozen things, things like smoothies, and you know she'll feel good about the theoretical health benefits that she's getting from them, and uh, and, and also uh, be sipping them uh, slowly. So I, ho- I hope this is somewhat helpful. What do you think, Peter? Did you have any uh, BSOP while you're in Senegal, Dave? I had a whole boatload of uh, of uh, BSOP. That is one of my favorite summer refreshing beverages and i'm wondering whether if you concentrated those flavors that could become something more sippable oh yeah well so bisop it's a good good point bisop is uh, uh known by a, a bunch of different names roselle uh red sorrel not to be confused with uh wood sorrel or the herb sorrel uh it's hibiscus flower and uh you know it's used in africa where it's native it's used a lot in the caribbean and mexico where it's naturalized uh and uh makes a fantastic uh beverage uh, the bisap that I had in Africa was of higher quality than the dried stuff that I get here. Uh, but I have used the stuff here, and it's good. You make like you make a tea. They actually make a delicious also. They make a delicious bisap jelly in uh, in West Africa, at least in Senegal, and it's amazing because it has the texture of apple butter, but with that really tart, acidic, fruity thing. So I think bisap would be great. Make a tea out of it, sweeten it, uh, and then uh, actually bisap and ginger works, and also bisap and mint works. Or all three. Yeah, or all three together. And so like a combination of mint, uh, bisop, and ginger could make a really great um, um, drink that could go on the sipping. If you make it a little bit weaker, then it's a pounder. And if you make it a little bit you know, uh, heavier in flavor, then it's more of a sipper. But the great thing about it is, is that if you're a fan of the flavor, which I am, you don't tire of it when you're drinking it. You, know, you, can, drink, uh, you can drink a good bit of it. Good call, Peter. Right on. Good call. Uh, all right. Uh, my other question is about uh, coffee. Uh, I do not have an espresso machine and would not be able to justify the expense of buying any new equipment, but would love to be able to make phone milk for our weekend coffee. I've tried to look for solutions on Coffee Geek and various other websites, but I've had no luck. I did find a video where someone seemed to be able to make a decent phone with the little wands you can buy at Ikea, but I've been unable to replicate this either, uh, uh, either with the identical gadget or by the slightly more expensive one that Cook's Illustrated recommends. What am I missing? Is steam an essential part of the process? Am I not getting the right temperature or just using the wrong uh, vessel to hold the milk? Is there a stabilizer that might help? Uh, I seem to be able to get a good foam when the milk is cold, but I can't seem to heat the milk up to even moderately drinkable temperatures like 60 uh, Celsius and keep the foam or to foam the milk at higher temperatures. The coffee geeks just laugh at me and say I am S-O-L. Any ideas? Uh, Yeah, I think you're S-O-L. But here's the issue. Uh, Like many things – by the way, uh, you know, uh, Alex has another question on uh, on coffee makers, but I'm going to have to put that one off until next time, Alex. But the the deal is this – so the coffee coffee geek was one of the early websites that introduced. Uh, I mean, so you, you know, those of you that have been making coffee for a while, uh, you know, 
know that like the, the latte art movement kind of that came out of Seattle in the, in the late nineties, I guess nineteen nineties. Is that right? I mean, it's hard for me to look back. Uh, you know, David Schomer from Vivace was the first person I knew about who you know was widely talking about it, and I bought his book. You know, uh, whatever it's called, professional barista techniques, whatever, where he you know, explains it, and uh, you know, amazing stuff. But to get that, you know, by the way, latte art. Everyone knows what I'm talking about here. Latte art, the pictures that you make by by you know, doing the milk and the highest form of it, you don't even touch the cup at all. It's just how you pour the milk makes it. But in order to do it, you need a very specific texture of milk, right? Now, the theory is that that texture of milk is also the most delicious texture of milk, but it's called a microfoam. And so uh, there's a lot written in Coffee Geek about how to achieve microfoam. And that particular type of microfoam is produced by steaming, right? And trying to create that in any other way I mean, you might be able to come up, uh, I mean, or I might be, or you might be, someone might be able to come up with it, with a similar textured product by doing a host of other things to it, but there's no simple way, right? Now, here's the question. Is that the best tasting foam? I don't know. It's a taste of foam. Is espresso the best taste of coffee? I think it is, but other people like other forms of coffee making. So what I would do is stop trying to make latte art style foam in any other technique, and just find a foaming technique that you like, that makes a taste that you like. You know, you're, I, I have very severe doubts that you're going to be able to, without a lot of experimentation, and we could stabilize it and whip it, uh, but, you know, the microfoam is a very specific, very dense bubble size, very wet foam. And, you know, right? I mean... Uh, you know, and just because you're diff- just because you get a different result doesn't mean it's necessarily worse. You're just gonna have to use it in a different way. But I will think more about it and maybe talk about it more when I talk about your coffee question, coffee maker question later. Uh, uh, John Riper g- came in and he uh, last week. Unfortunately, I wasn't here. I was in Senegal, and he gave us some really interesting hazelnuts. So I'll just read a little quick thing. So hazelnuts, we all know hazelnuts, a little round, but they're not all round. There's a variety called the Duchili uh, uh, hazelnut that is long, almost looks almondy, and looks like woody on the outside. So uh, John dropped by some. These are like these are like super like uh, old cultivar heritage uh, heirloom variety of uh, hazelnuts, and uh, he dropped by some roasted ones and uh, unroasted ones, and was talking about the um, what happens to the development of flavor in hazelnuts as as they're roasted. So since I just got back. Yesterday, I tasted them, but I haven't had time to do a lot of experimenting. So next week, John, I'm going to go more into about these different things. But you guys should take a look at these Duchili uh, hazelnuts. They're supposed to have a thinner skin and therefore be less bitter than uh, their, their their smaller, rounder uh, brethren. But they're uh, susceptible to certain diseases, and that's why they're not grown much. If you want to research it well, I'm uh, until, before I can get back to you guys, go to Holmquist uh, Orchards where they grow them in uh, in Washington. Okay. Um, Robin writes in about meat grinders. Dave, please say some words about meat grinders. I'm primarily using a meat grinder for making dog food from chicken, turkey, and rabbit parts. So I need something uh, powerful enough to not bog down uh, grinding soft bones uh, and uh, with a fill hole that will accommodate something as large as a chicken leg without me having to further invest in a meat cleaver to cut up the parts so they're small enough to fit in a chute. I made the mistake of purchasing an LEM number 5 0.2 horsepower motor grinder sold by your local sporting goods big box store. It is underpowered. It is underpowered. The fuse had to be reset frequently even though I'm not forcing the meat through and it is overheating and smoking. It requires disassembly to unjam it and was a waste of money. It is going back to the store tomorrow. Without breaking the bank, what do you recommend that will serve me well? Thanks for the brilliant radio show. Uh, All y'all. Robin. Okay, here's the deal. So, Peter, you might be asking yourself, 
why would they want to grow in the, uh, grind the bones? Oh, I am asking myself that very question. But remember, they're making dog food. So the thing is, dogs uh, calcium supposedly. There's a movement called the BARF diet, which the acronym can mean different things. So like <laughs> bones and raw food diet for dogs, and you grind up the, the bones whole, so the dogs take in the whole thing. Cats also have to be careful not to do uh, not to do it with cooked bones because uh, cooked bones are very sharp and can damage the uh, insides of the of uh, you know your animal. And then there's the debate of whether or not there's microbial problems due on raw food diet when you feed it to an animal. Blah, but I'm not getting into that. We're getting into whether it grunts. Now, I've never thought about this problem, uh, but I did, some, I did some research. turns out that the LEM that you looked at, uh, that you have, the LEM um, uh, number five uh, quarter horsepower one, which sells on uh, Amazon for $196.99, uh, has a quarter horsepower motor. It's pretty small motor. The good news about that grinder that you have that you hate is that uh, the gears are all metal, and so they're really tough, and it's all stainless, so all that's really tough. But that motor is underpowered, and so it's going to jam, overheat, and the fuse will blow. As, or it's not really probably the fuse. It's probably the thermal overload in it. So that's probably what's happening. So the solution to that is they do make a larger motor one. Uh, they make a .375 horsepower, which is only – $70 more, $267 you can go get, and that might be a solution. I've heard other people say that that one grinds chicken bones better. Uh, you know, then you – like, you know, if you re- – without breaking the bank, that's the problem. The larger ones can do it. So the Westin, uh, the Westin number 22 professional on the Amazon for $551, everyone says that grinds through chicken like nobody's business, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, that's – well over twice, almost three times the cost of the one that you had. Uh, if you go on the on, – uh, still on eBay now. If you look at the STX Turbo Force 3000 series, you like that? STX Turbo Force 3000. They say it's, uh, it's 150 bucks. They say that it is uh, 3,000 watts. And they admit, if you look at the, it's really interesting actually, if you look at the things. The thing with, with motors of all types is people, you have to f- ask someone how they rate it. So I'm assuming that when LEM is rating their motors, they're actually talking sh- shaft horsepower, power at the shaft, right? Which is different from the input power into the machine, right? Because motors aren't 100% efficient. So it's a question of how you do it. One, 740 something watts is one horsepower, right? Uh, so these guys say that the STX Turbo Force 3000 is 3000 watt, but that's a load of malarkey. That's, you know, that's the motor, as my dad would always say, that's the motor, like, as it's about to explode from burning out, like, when you're holding the shaft and plugging it in and drawing all the current that you possibly can and everything's blowing up and dying, right? Uh, or peak impulse death powers, he calls it. I'm imagining uh, Back to the Future uh, doc, you know. Yeah, 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 Lightning right? Bolts everywhere. Yeah, exactly. So uh, in reality, this 3,000-watt monstrosity is, is actually closer to three-quarters of a horsepower in real life. But that's still significantly more powerful than the one you have. It has uh, um, some plastic gears, but they claim that these plastic gears uh, don't break. It does have a guarantee. It also has something you might be interested in called a reverse switch so that you can reverse the, the machinery to unjam it without disassembling it. So if you do jam it, there you go. Now, there are a number of people on the reviewing thing that say they've ground chicken bones, and then there's a number of people who call BS on that and say Sucker doesn't grind chicken bones that well, right? So what those guys say is that to really grind chicken bones, you've got to freeze – debone your thighs or legs, freeze the thighs, break them with a hammer, and then grind them in, which is what they say to do. But clearly you don't want to do this because you don't want to cleave it up, you say, with a meat cleaver. So, you know, I'm not sure where to go with that, uh, but it is on Amazon. It does have a return policy, so you might be able to, you know, test your luck, and it is even cheaper than the one you already had. 
uh, okay. Uh, Alex uh, wrote in, uh, different Alex, wrote in with questions about uh, mocha pots. You know mocha pots, Peter? Yeah, you know the ones that you put on the stove, and they're little—they're like made out of aluminum usually, and they, they make coffee. Actually, you know, I used to use them. They're—they're they're, again, they're not espresso. People make that mistake. A mocha cup is its own kind of cup. It's not an espresso. So uh, Alex has questions on the mocha process, but I think what I'm going to do, Alex, is fold your question on mocha pots into the other question on coffee that the other Alex asked, and we'll talk about them both on the next show. Since uh, apparently my time here is drawing nigh, right? Yep. Right. Okay. So to quickly to rip through. Uh, got some Twitter questions in. Uh, Elliot Pappenow writes in, any problems with infusing chopped hazelnuts? I mean, it's, it's a hazelnut show. It always happens, man. Uh, chopped hazelnuts into cream with an ISI. I mean, I don't know how much of a flavor your impact you're going to get off of uh, just infusion without heat and an ISI because nuts aren't that porous. Usually you do a heat infusion or better yet, grind them and make like a nut milk. That's the way I would do it. Grind and make a nut milk and then strain the stuff out. I think that's the best way you're going to go. I don't know that ISI is going to be the technique to use with that. But, of course, uh, I'm probably wrong as I usually am. Terry Tinton writes in, hey, have you ever tried creating your own Aero chocolate bar? No. I have not, although actually that's not true. I mean I've made the aerated chocolate before with a, with a vacuum machine, but what I would do is go look at uh, Heston uh, Blumenthal has done a lot of work with that. He has a recipe online. Uh, you need a, a, a vacuum machine and a way to set it, uh, set it in a freezer, but it's not technically difficult. I've never actually done it though. But Heston's recipe is out there for all to read, so uh, you know, go check it out. If you have more questions or problems on it, uh, hit me back on it. Peter, you got uh, the Tony uh, Harion has a question in there about uh, on the Twitter feed uh, about uh, freezing and thawing to increase or change the flavor of juice extraction. A uh, freezing and thawing ruptures cells and so therefore will theoretically increase the yield of juice. But I've never done an actual test on it. I will look up over the course of the week, uh, hopefully whether or not um, whether or not there's any studies that I can publish, and then I'll talk about my experiences of the differences in flavor of, for instance, like frozen thawed lemons, and also uh, its effect on t- on astringency and tannin and things like persimmons where you can clearly reduce the tannin and the astringency by freezing and thawing. But that's slightly different from what it does to the juice. That's just the flavor change from overall freezing and thawing. Any other questions there you see on the Twitter right away? Uh, We got, let's see here, uh, Alvin Schultz. Give me some. All right. I want to make large format clear ice at home. Have a chamber vac, rotovap, liquid nitrogen, and a crappy home freezer. Okay. No problem. Go buy an igloo cooler. Uh... You know, a square one. Rip the top off of it. Uh, use hot water. Pour it. Uh, if you can, use relatively pure hot water, right? Pour it into the uh, warm water. You don't have to – you can let it cool down. Don't put it hot into your freezer. You're going to screw all your stuff. The reason for hot, less dissolved gases, right? Right? Right. Uh, it's not strictly speaking necessary, but, you know, do it. Warm water even. Then uh, put it in the freezer and let it sit for, uh, you know, a number of days. Uh, should take like two days, maybe a day, day to two days, test it, right? What's going to happen is is that the, uh, the energy is going to go into the ice uh, preferentially through the top, and so you're going to freeze from the top down. Therefore, all the stuff at the top will be clear as you expel out uh, the various impurities at the ice uh, water layer that's in the bottom. Then uh, pull it out of the freezer before it totally freezes solid, or you can let it freeze totally solid, but the bottom of it's going to be crappy. Uh, let it temper out. Pop it out of the igloo, saw off any bad parts that are on the bottom only when it's tempered, and there you go. Should work. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, now, uh, how long do I have? Like three minutes? What do I have, Joe? Three minutes? Yeah, you've got like three minutes. Yeah, exactly. 12.57. And we need, and we need to go off right at one? 
You can go a little bit later. All right. So I here's guess. here's what we're gonna do. I know I didn't take any commercial breaks today, but because it, it, because we're, I'm running late. So what I'm gonna do is is that on the out of the show, can we go to the actual commercial break so we can play our sponsor? By the way, the our sponsor today is Joe. Uh, it is the chef step from Chris Young, right? So Chris Young, who has been a guest on this show before, is one of the authors of Modernist Cuisine, uh, but not Modernist Cuisine at Home. But it's an interesting little dig that he had. You know, save the five hundred bucks. Uh, it's kind of an interesting little dig. I just met with our friend Michael Natkin yesterday at Booker. By the way, big congratulations to all of our friends who were winners at the James Beard uh, last night, including uh, Wiley Dufresne, brother-in-law, Brooks, Brooks Headley from Del Posto, Del Posto itself, and then a, a bunch of other people. I, I didn't, uh, I don't have the full list in front of me, but a bunch of good people uh, won. That's great. Anyway, so uh, Michael Natkin. Uh, Talked to him at the bar yesterday, the writer for the uh, Herb Voracious uh, website and cookbook, also working with Chris on this project. And uh, so I was talking to him about it. You know, maybe, maybe we'll do some work with them at some point. But I found out that they were a sponsor of the show. We love them. Uh, great guys, you know, all, all best, all love. But That's I right. love that little dig, right? Yeah. Save 500 bucks. I figured they're targeting two very different markets there, though. Yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, I just thought it was fun. Anyway. Yeah. So uh, and, and uh, by the way, I hope I Michael. I wanted to force him to come on the show today, but he had to go back uh, back home. But I hope to get all of those guys maybe back on the radio here at some point, uh, and then you guys can all ask questions of them. Okay, uh, before I go to the last question, since I can go a little long, let's talk a little Africa stuff. So when I was in uh, Senegal, I think the most striking thing. I'm just talking food now, right? Yeah. The, the most striking thing uh, about the food was there seems to be a uh, much more of a continuum b- uh, between. Uh, the uh, unfermented and the fermented in West African food than we would get in the States, right? So yeah. a lot more fermented grain products, like a lot more products of uh, fermentation in all of their grades. Was that your experience down in Cameroon as well? Yeah, man. At those temperatures, everything just starts fermenting, you know? Right, but it's all done. In other words, like, it's like part of the flavor. So, yeah. you know, like porridges will be fermented. Yeah. Uh, you know, so they have like a, they have a, this awesome millet um, – Porridge called fondue in uh, in Senegal that is, um, you know, it's fermented millet porridge and it's served with fermented kind of thin milk yogurt on top and like a little bit of sugar and it's yeah. great. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's a flavor that you don't uh, get here. Or, you know, the the main starches that you know will be made into uh, gruels, uh, you know, or batters fermented and then uh, and then cooked off. You know, so like various fermented uh, fufus and things like that. Oh yeah. But one of the interesting things I had that's from Cameroon, and maybe you remember the name of it because uh, I can't remember the name of it because I, I couldn't write it down. I had it. it was very interesting, and it was uh, it was manioc. Cassa- oh, cassava. I love it in sticks, like gummy, like a rice cake. Yes, it had the texture of mochi, but it's fermented. Yeah. yeah. Do you have this? Yes. What's the name of it? Well, in Cameroon, there are a lot of different names, but the most common was, one was just baton de manioc, which just means manioc stick. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So. Uh, they have a real bouncy texture like mochi, right? I love it. And they're fermented. And they're they, – like the first bite, you're like, am I going to like this? But they're freaking addictive. Amazing. Yeah. So, But here's the interesting thing. The particular one I had had been you know, made by the cook, was house-made. And the particular fermented flavor of this one was unlike most of the other fermentations that I had had in that it didn't taste like a lactic acid bacteria to me, the one I had. It tasted – the most similar uh, fermentation taste I could put on it was salt-risen bread. And salt-risen bread, which we talked about in the show before, is like a very kind of like weird old 
like kind of rare bread technique from the Appalachians where the main fermentation agent is Clostridium perfringens, which normally is a foodborne, you know, illness, you know, pathogen caused a lot of problems. But um, when the one time I made salt raised bread one or twice, it, this had a, that similar fermented flavor, but I haven't had time to research it yet. But did you notice in Cameroon that they had a different kind of fermented flavor from other things or is it the same or? It's hard for me time? to say, man. It's just, uh, it's just a great taste, man. I love it. All right. So I'm going to go back and do some research on that. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, you know, that they, they have – there's so many fermented products over there. And my, one of my favorite fermented products in the world it was in Cameroon. Which one? Palm wine. Oh, yes. You know what? The palm wine – first of all, Senegal is predominantly Muslim, right? Yeah. And in fact, they had me serve an alcoholic beverage at this event and didn't put a French translator next to me. And so I was in a position – my French isn't – my accent's not good enough to immediately tell people. So these people descended on us, and then people started picking up the drink and drinking it. Was, it was made with mod, which is an ama- M-A-D-D or M-A-A-D or M-A-D-E, which is an amazing fruit from Casamance, which is in southern Senegal. It's an amazing fruit. Fruit It has like kind of like – it tastes like kind of passion fruit and like kind of got but a lot of acidity, more acidic tart in the way lime is tart, not in the way that passion fruit is tart, but like – passion fruit and a bunch of different other tropical fruits, like maybe some guanabana flavor in it. And uh, I made a juice out of it. Uh, you know, I tried to do Booker and Dax, but like low-tech style. So like I strained it. It was really pure and mixed it with rum. Fantastic. I wish we could get this fruit here. Anyway, so they're picking it up and like one person does a spit take. I'm like, it's got alcohol in it. And then like they eventually posted a like a hostess next to me who literally just stood there like wagging her finger back and forth like, no, no. I'm like, well, you know, don't do that. It's not poisonous. You know, and some of the people here aren't 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 you know Muslim. They can have it, but I've, I was like, I was like, what 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 has gone wrong with my life that I'm here in a Muslim country trying to serve alcohol <laughs> to people? Like it's exactly like the worst thing that could happen. But the drink was in fact delicious. Um, do they have netatu in, in Cameroon or no? I don't know what netatu is. Cameroon uh, netatu is the fermented uh, seeds of uh, some uh, acacia tree, and uh, it's amazing stuff. Uh, the I forget the the genus name, but the species of it is Big Lobosa. Big Lobosa. That'd be a good rapper name. Oh, uh, sick name! Next to Big Lobosa, <laughs> like. Uh, but it has a taste. It's it's used in a lot of stews, like uh, and like other things, like tibujen, which is like the traditional you know national Senegalese dish. But it has um, in it. Uh, it has the flavors of like coffee and chocolate and black bean. So it's like really mm. kind of and it's it's a boiled and fermented. Uh, you know, boil the boil the uh, the seeds and pods, ferment them, and then salt them and let them dry. Uh, fermented onion that, that's used in things is put in balls. Fermented fish is famous, like gedge. Fermented conch yet, which is amazing. But like all these fermented things. But what people don't, I mean, the smells in the market can be overpowering, but the foods aren't at all like that overpowering. Mm-hmm. They're just really, I thought, really delicious, uh, really interesting, unique flavors, and I'm definitely going to be working with them. Um, in the future, you know what I mean. Yeah. And the Cam- the one Cameroonian restaurant I went to, the food was amazing. I can't wait to go to the Cameroon uh, area there. I hear that it's like just the the fruits and vegetables and stuff, just good stuff. Yeah. There's an insane culinary diversity in that country. Yeah, I mean, there's just a lot going on in West Africa in general. So I just had the the very like the smallest taste of it going to uh, Senegal, and I hope to be going back at at some point. I think it's one of the the most uh, undiscovered collection of cuisines in the world, well, West African cuisines. You know, that's in, in part, and all of sub-Saharan Africa, frankly, you know what yeah. I mean, is like that. And that's the reason uh, that we were doing this thing. Pierre Cham, 
uh, you know, a uh, friend of friend of ours who uh, you know had a restaurant, Grand Dakar, in uh, Brooklyn, is from Senegal, and uh, you know, uh, I had spoken to him about organizing a series of trips a couple years ago, and he finally made it happen. Even though you know, I, I have you know, I've been too busy, I haven't done it. But the the basic idea is is that in Africa, when foreigners come, they feed them non traditional food because they assume that you know that. You know, Western or you know, with like Euro, Euro and American style folks don't want the traditional food, yeah. right? Which is as far as like people nowadays, like people like myself or other like gastro tourists or you know, uh, gastro tourism, which is a big thing. They don't want fake food. You know, like I say, if, you, if I want French food, I'll go to France. If I'm yeah. going to fly somewhere, I want to learn about the food that's from there, right? Uh, so, so there's that. They're showing people there that outsiders respect the indigenous stuff and that that's what they should do. And then there's the flip side is that we don't know hardly anything about it and there's a lot to learn. There's as much diversity and interest and amazing stuff going on there as you know any one of the Asian cultures that everyone here knows all the minutia of or any one of the European cultures that everyone knows all the minutia of the food products from, right? And yet there's not the exposure uh, to it and therefore not that level of interest. So when I went there, I did a talk actually and I tried to point – I was like, look, you know, in, in here in the US, I was like, take a look at Sean Brock who's been doing like high-level work with you know, specifically South Carolina stuff, right? And so he's doing some amazing work but that's you know, not that much of a stretch because he's you know, here and people you know, respect what's going on. I was like, OK, well, you know, look at uh, you know, 20 years to – 10 years ago even, 10 years ago, who thought about Danish food? Right. Did you? Not now, much. Now all that stuff's now all the rage. Why? Yeah. Because of Rennie Redzepi. So I put Rennie Redzepi up and I put Alex uh, Atla from uh, DOM in uh, Brazil who's like, you know, everyone in South America looks at what happened at that restaurant and how he's using uh, incredibly local products to do this really high-end work. So he's not doing French work uh, that happens to have a couple local ingredients. He's like using modern cooking techniques and using incredibly local ingredients. And the advantage is, is it can't be copied. You can't copy that restaurant somewhere else because you don't have access to the ingredients. Same goes for Noma. Same goes for uh, Sean you know, down in, uh, in uh, South Carolina is they have cuisines that are respected the world over and that can't be copied. So you need to go travel to have it. And you know, I said that this may seem irrelevant to you, as I said this to people, in a country where you know, a huge percentage of you know, your population is suffering from problems like iron deficiency. You know what I mean, uh, and other things. But in fact, we can you can you know you can generate some good revenue if you you know if you do it. I don't know. Uh, and of course, introducing people to these these culinary sort of treasures around the world is one of the major goals of the Museum of Food and Drink. Oh yes, oh yes, oh much so yes. Um, anyway, so we'll talk more about maybe some of the other like baobab. Do they have baobab stuff down? Oh, it's my favorite tree in the world. That's a good tree, right? That's oh, an awesome tree. Baobab. It's called something like buyi or something in Wolof, but I don't know what it's called down in Cameroon. But it, yeah, it's a guy. They use every part of the dang tree, and plus they're just really cool looking. They're amazing. Yeah. So we'll talk more about this. I, you know, I have some. I didn't bring it with me. The baobab candy. I'll bring you some. I, I still think I still have some left. I'm not sure. Okay. Last question on the way out. Uh, and then on the way out, remember, Joe, we're going to play uh, our commercial uh, break sponsors because I didn't go to a commercial break today. You got it. Uh, SB writes in, says, greetings from Paris. All right. The Bonjour. F- yeah, Paris. The uh, fourth season of Top Chef has just ended here in France, and I wanted to get your views on culinary competitions in general. So already it sounds like a good question, right? Right? Yeah. Uh, more specifically, do Top Chef or Iron Chef-like shows really crown good cooks? Or is it more of a mix of luck, contestant personality, etc.? What do you think of the professional competitions, such as the Bocuse d'Or? 
That's the uh, the Bocuz of gold, as we say here in the in the U.S. of A. Uh, the Pastry World Cup, or the MOF, which sp- stands for uh, oh something, may, you know, something over your Française. The, the, anyway, like yeah. butt kicking of Frenchness, which by the way isn't just for chefs; it's for any sort of. There's a, a whole list of crafts that you can have MOF in France uh, and others. Also, feel free to say bad things about Hervé Tisse. Okay, SB. Well, uh, he is actually one of the very few people in the food world that I don't have a compunction just saying bad things about because he, uh, A, doesn't care whether or not Americans say bad things about him, and B, he is a huckster charlatan uh, and says crazy false things all the time. And I always hold up against him Harold McGee, who is, uh, you know, uh, awesome. So they're kind of like opposites. You know what I mean? Yeah, man. Yeah. Hervé Tisse, who thinks that uh, cooking an egg in an oven is a good way to measure how it responds to temperatures, which – whatever. Don't, don't, you know what, SB? Don't get me started. <laughs> don't get me started because then you know, I only have a couple minutes to answer your, your regular question. So my thing on this is, is that uh, contests, contests clearly measure something. The question is what do they measure, right? So you know, one thing you can look at is uh, you know, which ones do chefs watch, right? So chefs uh, used to – I don't know if they still do uh, – watch Iron Chef like they like it, right? That was one of the very first uh, contest shows that chefs actually wanted to be on, right? So Wiley, uh, who you know, didn't – was like, ah, I don't – food TV. I hate food TV. Ah. He doesn't talk like that. But anyway, but he said that uh, – why do I always use voices that aren't people like anything like the people that I'm talking about? It's just – I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, anyway uh, – uh, when he got the opportunity to do Iron Chef, was like, yes, I want to do it. Everybody has respect for the uh, – uh, or, you know, again, I haven't spoken to people about it in a while, but respect for the Iron Chef brand. Uh, and it, it is a mixture of personality, right? Because a lot of it's about, uh, you know, you have to talk to the judges. It's, you know, there's some sales shit, you know, sales, you know, selling that's going on when you're talking. But it, it also is real cooking task. And, you know, you do interesting stuff and it's, and it's respected. Um, you know, a lot of chefs have done Top Chef Masters, and the reason they do it isn't necessarily because they like the format of the of the show. It, I mean, to be very, um, you know, kind of blunt, uh, you get a big pop in the restaurant after you do the show, whether you win or you lose, right? Yeah. So it's good for business to do it, and it's good for and it's a it's kind of a mark that you've done it that allows you to then to do other things. So it's there's an advantage to doing it. You know, and what does it measure? I don't know. You know, like, you know, does it measure like how much you would like the food that someone cooked? Had, were they thinking about the food beforehand? You know what I mean? So when you're put in a situation where uh, so Iron Chef, for those of you that don't know, okay, Iron, when you do Iron Chef, it's not like someone's like uh, walks up to you and says, uh, widgety grubs and then it's the first time you've heard that this widgety grubs and then you ha- you create all these amazing dishes in an hour from widgety grubs right because if those iron chefs could actually do that then i would you know i would quit my job and spend all of my time just bowing at their knees <laughs> you know what i mean that's in fact not what happens on iron chef what happens on iron chef is you're given a list of of three or four i forget what it is possible uh, things that it could be, and you practice those recipes a bunch of times to make sure you can clock in in under an hour. That's what happens. Now, uh, it, there's an extreme advantage to the Iron Chef because they're used to the kitchen, and a lot of inefficiency comes from not being used to a kitchen, but th- there you have it. So 
so like it, but still, you know, it's a lot different from cooking in your own element with ingredients that you choose yourself. And these things like chopped, where you'd have no idea what's going on, are extremely different. So someone winning in that circumstance isn't the same thing as someone who would make the necessarily the most delicious food at their restaurant or even at your house, because at your house, time management isn't as important as it is in Iron Chef. Iron Chef is, is as much about time management as it is about anything else, because in Iron Chef, the goal really is to. Bring a bunch of impressive, impressive crap in an hour. You know what I mean? So it's like really a time management thing, which is actually a fantastic measure of a chef. Chef needs good time management. Not necessarily uh, the best indicator of who is, in absolute terms, the best cook, right? So, I mean, these are – they're all measuring different things and you have to look. Now, things like the – I also – you know, think that most outside accolades are kind of absurd because, again, they're also not necessarily measuring things that might be important in the real world. That said, MOF is pretty badass. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, anyone that has an MOF, you can pretty much guarantee that they're a badass. Saying Boku's door, if you win the Boku's door, you're a badass. I mean, like, that's all there is to it just because it's incredibly, incredibly difficult, right? So if someone climbs Mount Everest without oxygen, right? Are they the world's best human being? No, but it's pretty badass. I mean, I think it's I think it's personally dumb to try and climb, climb Mount Everest. And I also myself wouldn't want to spend the amount of time in my life it would take to get close to uh, winning any one of these competitions if I even could. You know what I mean? But they are a measure of badassery. What do you think? Uh, I don't know if you know about this, know this about me, Dave, but I actually competed in a cooking competition once. Yeah, I almost won a hundred thousand dollars making a burger. How was how the burger? Uh, I mean, the thing is, this speaks to your point. I'm not a great cook. I'm, you know, I can practice something and do it well eventually, and that's precisely what I did in this situation. It was actually a Sutter Home burger competition. The prize was $100,000. I came in second place, like, lost by one point out of like, 235. So what did you get? Just like a boatload of Merlot? I got nothing. No, Nathan. nothing? I got five. Actually, the second prize was $500. Ah. So it's $100,000 first, first place, then $500 second yeah, place. Third, third prize, you're fired? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I basically I think it's it's how a measure of how well you play the rules of that particular game. Yeah, right? also, yeah, in bar competitions, a lot of it's about the patter and the speech and kind of what you do and how well you can smooth the judges. And to be honest, like, it, depending on, like, some things are, you know, uh, judges are incredibly biased, you know, and you can just have a, a bad judge and you can have this. So, you know, they yes, they do measure something, uh, but take take you know, anything like that with a grain of salt. I personally detest competitions unless they are – like the only competitions that I, that I kind of enjoy are ones that are quantitative in nature that you can win or you can lose. You know what I mean? Like, who, like a juicing contest. Juicing contest, which I lost unfortunately last time I was in one and embarrassed myself in front of my kids and my kids have vowed to uh, revenge me later. Uh, I was embarrassed myself too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, there you go. And uh, you, you know, or you know, soccer game. Who gets the most goals? Anyway, but that, that's me. Uh, but I'm a curmudgeon and, and a weasel and a, and a hard person to, to deal with. Uh, so uh, more next week. Thanks, Peter, for coming in. Ready for the commercial break and on out with cooking issues. Do you want to become a more creative cook? Are you interested in cutting edge cooking techniques? Do you find the science of cooking fascinating? You could buy Modernist Cuisine, or you can save yourself $450 and check out ChefSteps.com. Founded by Chris Young, Ryan Matthew Smith, and Grant Grilly, all alumni of the creative team behind Modernist Cuisine, ChefSteps is loaded with reliable recipes, 
thorough step-by-step demonstrations and supported with clear explanations of the underlying science that answers the why behind the how. And through our forum, you can engage with our team as well as a friendly community of curious cooks from around the world. And Chef Steps is entirely free to learn. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.